New Testament faith is a faith that works. True faith works because true faith is a work of God in the life of man. He brings us forth by the word of truth. We are given new life, a birth from above through the word of truth. God only gives good things from above. Therefore, the work that he begins in the life of man is a good work. It's an effective work. It's a fruitful work. It's a work that will not fail. The faith that God gives is a faith that works. One of the ways that James has defined this faith that comes from above is by wisdom. The faith is indicated by godly wisdom, by wisdom that comes from above. Those who are born from above walk in the wisdom that comes from above. That wisdom is largely characterized by peace. It is indicative of peace between us and God. It produces peace in the heart of man and it seeks peace between men. The Christian life ought to be a life of peace because peace is a product of wisdom that is from above in the heart of a life born from above. Therefore, if the Christian life, if the Christian church is characterized by fights and quarrels, disorder and chaos, every evil thing, it stands to reason that something has gone terribly wrong. James addresses the believers in his day for this very reason. Something has gone terribly wrong in the church. In chapter 4, James indicates that there are fights, there are quarrels, and as a good pastor, he seeks to get to the heart of the issue. In chapter 4, verse 1, he asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he answers the question, is it not your passions that are at war within you? In those first three verses, James outlines the reality of their untamed passions. We have passions at work in the flesh that are unredeemed, ungodly, worldly passions. And these passions tend to motivate us to lash out in anger and frustration, to quarrel and fight when those passions are not satisfied. In verses 4 through 10, we looked at the reason for those untamed passions. We're too busy living like the world. We're too busy, as James said, pursuing friendship with the world as opposed to pursuing friendship with God. Those who pursue friendship with the world make themselves enemies of God. We don't have when we ask God because God opposes the proud. He opposes those who place their will and desires above his, but he gives grace to those who are humble. Therefore, James encourages us to, instead of falling away from God in pursuit of these passions, instead of allowing the tempter to tempt us into thinking that God does not care when we've fallen away, that we ought to instead draw near to God, to humble ourselves before him so that he might exalt us in his time. The reality of our untamed passions is that they cause quarrels and fights and disunity. The reason for our untamed passions is that we're too busy seeking friendship with the world instead of focusing on our relationship with God. And finally, in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, we see the result of untamed passions. What happens when we continue down that road? What happens if we fail to check our untamed passions, if we fail to draw near to God? What is the result in the life of a believer? James says in this section that it's nothing less than unmitigated pride. Whereas the godly humble themselves before God, the result of those who fail to humble themselves before God, those who continue to feed the passions of the flesh is pride. It's arrogance. And it's a pride that manifests itself in actions towards others and attitudes about life. 
If you haven't, go ahead and turn to chapter 4 in the letter of James. I'll read the whole chapter again for context, and we'll focus in on verses 11 through 17 this morning. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let us pray. Father, we come before you once again. We come before your word. Again, Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us by your truth, and he said that your word is truth. As we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would collectively be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, what happens if we fail to check our untamed passions? What happens when we fail to draw near to God? What is the result of our untamed passions? Again, it is nothing less than an unmitigated pride. It manifests itself in our lives. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but James mentions two particular areas where he sees his people struggling with pride. The result of our untamed passions in verses 11 and 12 is evil speaking against one another. And the result of our untamed passions in verses 13 through 17 is evil boasting about ourselves. Evil speaking against one another and evil boasting about ourselves. Let's look at that first point. The result of our untamed passions is evil speaking against one another. Again, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He's who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. We return again to the issue of speech. We were told in chapter 1, verse 19, that we're to exercise our faith in a way that is slow to speak. Our anger, our angry responses to one another will not lead to the righteousness of God, so we must be slow to speak with one another. We're told in chapter 1, verse 26, that the one who claims to be religious, the one who claims to have faith, should be able to exercise their, their control over their tongue. It says that if you cannot exercise control over your tongue or bridle your tongue, that your religion, your faith is worthless. We're told in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, that we're to exercise our faith in deed and in truth, not merely with words. Faith with words only is empty, or faith without works is dead. We're told in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that a mature Christian shows their maturity by not stumbling what they say. And in fact, those who are able to exercise control over their tongues are generally able to exercise control over their entire bodies. Moreover, he says in the remainder of that passage that the same tongue that we use to bless our Lord and Father should never be used to curse those who are made in the likeness of our Father. At the end of chapter 3, he says the tongue of faith is a tongue which pours forth wisdom that is from above. And as it pours forth wisdom that is from above, it is pursuing peace with others. And in our text... Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it's clear that the tongue which fights and quarrels is not issued from a mouth that is humbled before the Lord, but rather a mouth that is seeking friendship with the world. The tongue is of significant concern to James, as well as the rest of Scripture, precisely because the tongue is an indicator of what's in the heart. I've referenced this many times before, but Jesus' words in Matthew 15 are clear. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. That what comes out of the mouth is indicative, again, of what's in the heart. It issues forth from the heart. If you want to test to know whether or not you are in the faith, or if you're in the faith and you want to know whether or not you have a mature faith, record your speech for the day or for the week. And I don't mean just your speech when, you know, there are other Christian people around I mean the whole day. Record yourself and then play it back. What kinds of things do you typically talk about? How do you respond to others? Is there bickering, fights and quarrels, complaining, bitterness, unwholesome words, crude or unwelcome jokes, discouraging jokes and comments, spiritual talk that's empty, like be warmed and filled when you really don't care to help? What kind of advice do you give to others? Biblical advice or advice that is the sayings of the world? Do your words give a blessing or a curse? Do your words lead to peace or chaos? Back to our text again, it says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. This word, speak evil, one author commented, has overtones of unjustified speech against someone. He says it can be parallel to the more negative meanings of to judge or to condemn. 
but it may also refer to a broader oral mistreatment, including destructive verbal attacks, gossip behind another person's back, and false accusations. Thus, versions and other translations, he says, include criticize, speak evil against, malign, disparage, and backbite. End quote. To speak evil in this sense is to perhaps criticize another individual for their choice of dress. We're not talking about an immodest, a modesty issue. We're just talking about their choice of dress on Sunday morning. Maybe they dress up, maybe they don't dress up, and you think something about that, and so you say it. It really has nothing to do with any biblical truth. How about criticizing one another for their choice of work? Again, there's not an issue of sin, but they've chosen to work in a particular area, and maybe you just don't agree with it, or maybe you don't like it, or maybe you don't think it's good enough. Maybe you criticize another parent who sends their child to public school. Maybe you criticize another parent who sends their child to homeschool. Maybe you criticize another believer who votes the opposite party of you without fully knowing their convictions as to why they do that. Maybe you criticize another brother or sister who voted differently than you did at the last members meeting. Maybe you malign someone who doesn't give you what you think they should. You speak evil of someone behind their backs because of perceived wrong that they've committed against you. Even sometimes draping that, that evil speak in the form of prayer. Oh, pray for me. Because brother so-and-so is getting on my last nerve. And let me tell you what they did. These are not issues where there is clearly sin present. These are usually issues of preference or issues of convenience. Issues where there is sin defined by God's word, clearly visible issues are things that we ought to bring up with one another. We ought to speak, not in the critical or condemning sense, but rather for the good of one another. Again, Galatians chapter 6, if anyone's caught in sin, Paul says that they ought to be restored by spiritually minded people. If there is a sin issue, then we should address those things. I mean, we talk about church discipline for that very reason. Matthew chapter 18, there's a process if you see someone in unrepentant sin for talking to them about their unrepentant sin. But this is not that. This is, you don't like what they chose to do today. And so you're critical or you're speaking evil of them about it. Again, the text says, do not speak evil of one another. Do not criticize, malign, disparage, backbite against one another. This will only lead to disorder. It will lead to greater chaos, to disunity. He says, do not do this, brothers. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You belong to Christ. You belong to God. You're members of his family. You've been brought forth by the word of truth. You've been made new to speak evil against one another. Should never be present among you. You whose hearts have been changed. You whose, whose tongues have been sanctified for Christ's sake. You ought to be unified and at peace. He goes on. Again, in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Not only are we brought back to the issue of the tongue, but we're also brought back to the issue of the law, the importance of the law. I've said this before. Biblically, we're no longer under the law as Christians. James does not speak of the law in order to bind the consciences as if the Jewish Christians are still under the law. That's not the point. The point is that the law does continue to provide a standard for the will of God. It helps us to know the mind of God, what he desires from us, the quality of good works that we are to walk in. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. 
Jesus said in Matthew 22, the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and the second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets were chiefly concerned with the quality of our love for God and the quality of our love for one another. That's important to God. The purpose of the law was to foster love in the community. And we know that we've been called to love one another in the community of believers. If we speak evil against one another, we cannot possibly be loving. We cannot possibly maintain the unity of the spirit if we're busy criticizing and speaking evil of one another. James says if you speak evil of one another, then you're speaking evil also of the law. Well, in what way? Again, the law says love your neighbor. If you speak evil of your neighbor, what you're saying is that the law knows nothing. The law is flawed. The law is foolish. The law, the standard that God has left for us, which is chiefly concerned for how we care for one another, is of no consequence. That's what you're saying when you speak evil of your brother or sister in Christ. Moreover, you're judging the law in the sense that you're saying that it is useless. The standard is irrelevant. It's beneath you. It has no value. Again, you're standing over the law as its judge if you speak evil of another. Again, the issue boils down to pride. Conflicts come when passions arise that are not satisfied by others. These passions are fed as a product of our friendship with the world's system of thought, desires, and action. We're so intertwined in our thinking and desires with the world that we don't consider the mind of God. We don't consider the word of God. We don't consider the will of God as having significance in our lives. James says further, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. The word of God should shape our way of thinking. We should do what the law says. We should live in accord with the word of God. Indeed, we disregard the word of God. We disregard his standard. We disregard his standard and we act as judges of the law, treating his word, treating God himself as if he is meaningless. Living as practical atheists, living as the people of Psalm 14. We read that earlier for our scripture reading. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And he lives accordingly. Because when God looks around, he sees that there are none who do good. And they don't do good because they don't care for God's standard. They don't care for God's will. They're not seeking him. And we live that way. We adopt their way of thinking. When we fail to consider the standard of God as a rule for our lives. And we speak evil of one another. Verse 12, he says, there's one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who are judging your neighbor? We don't have the right to sit in judgment of our neighbor, our brother or sister in Christ, to be critical of them in matters of preference or convenience. And again, this is not in regards to things that are clearly sin. We have a process for that. But these are not sin issues that James is referring to. God is the judge. His word is clear. One author described this text this way. He says, James is not prohibiting the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise, nor is he forbidding the right of the community to exclude from its fellowship those it deems to be in flagrant disobedience standards to the truth, standards of the faith. He says, James here rebukes jealous, censorious speech by which we condemn others as being wrong in the sight of God. And that's an assessment that only God can make. 
James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord. The question is, are we standing over the law of God, over his word, in judgment of his will by the way we interact with each other? Or are we humbling ourselves before his word, humbling ourselves before his will, humbling ourselves before the one who is the judge? James says he is the one who saves. He is the one who has the ability to destroy. We talked about the nature of judgment before and how the final judgment of God is a theme running throughout this letter. And we see it again here. God is the judge of all things. Not you or I. Those who know, believe and trust in the judgment of God when it makes such arrogant judgments against one another. I wonder in your relationships, do you see yourself as the judge of others? Or do you leave room for the word of God? For that matter, are you submitted yourself to the word of God? Are you humbly submitting to the desire of God for there to be love among his people? Peace, grace, kindness, order, unity. Again, Ephesians 4 says that we ought to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that's a command specifically for the body of Christ, for each one of us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. But that should be true in all of our relationships. We should be seeking peace. Again, that's characteristic of wisdom, the wisdom that is from above. We shouldn't seek to stand in judgment of others in matters of preference or convenience. We should be seeking to pursue peace. Moving on, the result of our untamed passions, again, if we continue to feed the passions of the flesh, making ourselves friends of the world, the inevitable result is evil speaking against one another as we sit in judgment of one another, as our pride has inflated ourselves over the word of God and his will. Second, the result of our untamed passions is evil boasting. Look again at verses 13 through 17. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Boasting in your will is foolishness, he says. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Again, what we say is indicative of what's in our hearts. James is speaking to those who foolishly assume that they can make plans apart from the will of God. This is most likely in reference to the rich, those who have in the past accumulated great wealth. Those who are wealthy tend to presume upon their success. And again, it's not as if wealth, having wealth is a sin. That's not what he's saying. Having a business and pursuing success in your business is not a sin. James is not condemning that. Money is not the root of all evil. People misquote that all the time. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, the text says. Loving money leads you to pursue all kinds of, to pursue money in all kinds of ways that are not honoring to the Lord. That's the point. Money itself is not evil. But looking back at the text, those who say we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and make profit. The heart issue that James is addressing is the same as those who speak evil of others. It's pride. They're proudly assuming that they have control over their lives, that they have authority over their lives and that they have authority even over time. Again, these believers are living as practical atheists, much like 
mentioned from Psalm 14. They're thinking as if there is no sovereign ruler over them. They're not humbly acknowledging the work of God in their lives. They're living in pride, pride in their own ability, pride in their success. Again, as if God is not there. And James gets to the heart of the matter in verse 14 when he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You're making all these plans, but you really have no idea what's going to happen to you tomorrow. The proud assume they know. They assume they have it all together. And to the point of this text, the proud, those who have riches to accompany their pride, tend to rely on their riches and their ability to secure their future. Again, this is, isn't this kind of the course of the world? Isn't this what the world teaches? And that we often get dragged into this way of thinking? This is part of why we go through such great lengths to go to the most expensive schools. We need to have a good school so that we can get a nice paying job because we want to be financially secure in life. Financial security in the world's eyes is the source of happiness and peace. Thus, those who feel financially secure are thought to be more successful. But again, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is all of that planning doesn't include God and his sovereignty. Now, I think deep down in our hearts, we know that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But it makes us feel better when we have a little something in our hands, something in our wallet, something in our bank accounts to hold on to, to point to, to fall back on. I think this issue of pride is also why tragedy hits some people so hard. I mean, tragedy is tragic, right? So there's nothing wrong with feeling a sense of loss when something tragic happens. What I'm saying is that those who believe that they're in control, when they're faced with the reality that they're not in control, they tend to have a very long way to fall. Again, the text says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Those are some of the most sobering words of all of Scripture. You do not know, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Your life is like a vapor, a mist. It's here one moment and gone the next. I mean, consider the people of Israel who were just a few days ago lying down in their homes, resting peacefully. Bed on Friday night, some perhaps did not awaken on Saturday. Others lost their lives on Saturday and others still were running for their lives on Saturday. This is October. Our nation remembered 9-11 last month. Again, thousands of people going about their day as normal. When they woke up, plans as normal. Commuting as normal. Making their plans for the day as normal. Planning to have lunch and dinner just as normal. Thinking about what they were going to do the next week and the next month and the vacation that was coming up, and they never made it. reality that we do not know what tomorrow will bring is a reality that we must all face and it is one that we must all believe now this is not to say that we cannot ever plan that's not what James is saying he's going to address how to plan in just another verse and James is certainly not saying this to stir up anxiety in his people but again James was taught by the master teacher Jesus himself who said do not be anxious for your life right do not be anxious about tomorrow why your heavenly father knows what you need he is the God who sees 
This is one of the first ways that God is identified in Genesis by Abraham. And one of the most significant ways, you remember when he offered up Isaac on the altar, what did he say of God when God provided the ram in the thicket? You are the God who sees, the God who provides. The text literally says he is the God who sees. We have the, 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 the saying that I'll see to it when something needs to get done, right? That's the idea. That God sees what happens in our lives He knows what's happening in our lives, and he'll see to it that we have what we need. He'll provide. Again, it's not that we cannot ever plan or should not ever plan. It's that if we plan as a believer, as one who has faith, then we ought to plan acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Acknowledging that we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but that he does, and that's actually a good thing. James underscores his truth in the next verse, verse 15. Instead, instead of saying, I will go, I will do, I will make a profit, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Instead of foolishly boasting in your ability when you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow, you ought to rest in the fact that the Lord knows. Again, as an act of faith, you say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Boasting in your own will is faithless. You see the progression in his words, right? If the Lord wills, if it is his desire, these things will happen. If the Lord wills, we will live. I don't know if it is his will that I will live another day, another week, another month. I don't say that from a position of fear, but a position of faith. If it is his will that I live tomorrow to do this or that, I will. If it's not, I won't. And that's still good. What did Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Whatever the this or that is, is also up to the Lord. Perhaps I'll be able to travel to another town. Perhaps when I get there, I'll be able to trade. Perhaps when I trade, I'll be able to make a profit. If the Lord wills, these things will be true. There's nothing wrong with planning. You just have to acknowledge the reality of God's sovereignty over you. And this is not fatalism either, right? Whatever will happen will happen, so I just don't need to do anything. I don't need a plan. I don't have to work. I don't have to care. This is faith. This is faith and trusting God with our plans. I wonder, do you trust the Lord with your tomorrow? Do you trust him with your life and your livelihood enough to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that tomorrow? One of my pastors from back in the day used to say, Lord willing, all the time. It kind of drove me crazy sometimes. (laughs) I'd be thinking in my head, I get it already, dude. I know if the Lord wills. But if you think about it, the way we tend to talk about the future apart from the Lord's will is very presumptuous. And if we believe that God is sovereign, that he is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will, according to Ephesians 1.11, if we are in a position of humility before him, before his will, then we dare not think of our tomorrows apart from his will. And it doesn't matter if our tomorrows involve a good thing or a thing that causes anxiety, right? If it's a good thing, then we should ask for the sovereign God to be willing to grant it. After all, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift, Yes? If it is good and it is not something that we're seeking simply to spend on our passions, then we should look for it from his sovereign hands. 
if it is something that causes us anxiety, it doesn't matter what the cause of anxiety is, an academic test, a job, a health issue, a relationship issue, a decision that will impact our future, whatever it is, we should long for the sovereign God to exercise his sovereign control over that thing. That thing may be happening tomorrow, maybe it's not, but we should long for him to exercise his sovereign control over it for our good because scripture says what? That he works all things together for our good. So even if it's something that we're worried about, we should be looking to him to exercise his sovereign control over it, to care for us. It's an act of pride to worry about the tomorrow thing apart from the sovereignty of God. You're putting your place, yourself in the place of God when you are anxious about that thing that's happening tomorrow, when you presume upon the tomorrow, when you don't really know what's going to happen. To continually dwell on the future so as to become anxious because you assume that you have a measure of control over your destiny or you assume that some other thing like chance or some other person has control of your tomorrow over the sovereign God is to persist in thinking in a way that is not of faith and that is therefore sin. The future and all of what will transpire in the future, yes, even tomorrow is in the hands of the sovereign of the universe, not anyone or any other thing. Leave it to him. Listen, if anxiety is something that you struggle with, remember that James has already said that God gives greater grace to those who are humble, to those who draw near to him. If you're struggling with being anxious about things, draw near to God. Humble yourself before him. To experience anxiety, just a few things to keep in mind. To experience anxiety doesn't mean that you are unchristian or somehow lesser Christian. The fact is that God addresses anxiety directly in scripture. And that's an indication that he knows that believers will at times become anxious. And he simply desires to encourage us in the midst of it. Second, he gives us prayer. I've shared this passage frequently. First Peter five, seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We see also Philippians chapter four, verse six, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's one of my favorite passages of scripture when it comes to anxiety, because it is a command to pray when we're anxious and is a reminder that God will do something about it. The text says that he will guard your hearts and minds. That's military language. He says that he's going to set a guard around your heart and a guard around your mind to protect you in Christ when you're anxious, if you pray. Because he cares for you. Again, read the word, stay close to his truth. Philippians 4, 8. When you're anxious, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Why? Because when we're anxious, what are we thinking about? All these things that we don't know. (laughs) We're thinking about all these things we don't know about, all these things that could possibly happen, could not happen. And we just keep thinking about those things over and over again, and it makes us more and more anxious and more and more discouraged 
And Paul says, instead of thinking about those things, think of what is true and what is good and what is right and what is lovely. Keep your mind on the truth of God. That's why I encourage people to memorize scripture. Stay in the word of God. Stay close to his truth. Stay close to his promises. Because those are the things that are good and right and true. Psalm 119, 105. We tend to read this, think about this verse when we think about sin, right? And not sinning. But listen to it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When do you need a lamp and a light? When you're in darkness. If you're in darkness and you're struggling, fumbling about in the darkness, you need a light. And what light has God provided for those who are walking in darkness? His word, his truth. You're struggling with anxiety, pray, read God's word, tell someone else, and keep coming. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. It's verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we gather together, I like to talk about church as the fellowship. That's how I refer to it. When we go to the fellowship, that's how I talk about it at home. That's how I talk about it to other people. I try to talk about it that way as much as possible. When you say church, it sounds kind of stale and kind of boring. sounds like you're going to a building. We're not going to a building. We're going to the fellowship, the gathering of God's people. Why is that significant? Because sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is discouraging. And I'm not encouraging you. God's word is not encouraging you just to go to a building. He's encouraging you to go to other people who know Jesus and love Jesus and who are able to encourage you when you're struggling with things. Tell someone about it. Don't sit at home. It's not just your problem. If you're a part of the body of Christ, then you're a part of a body and you're members of one another. So share with someone what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your life and allow them to encourage you. We could talk about other things, going to counseling or sometimes there's medication that's needed. And I'll just say, because there's a lot in the Christian community about, you know, medication and what should we take it? Should we not? The reality is, and this is the way I think about it, sometimes our bodies are broken. They just don't work the way they're supposed to. And sometimes we need medication to help that. That's just the way it is. We take Tylenol for headaches, right? Because our bodies don't work properly. We take Tylenols for, for back aches. So sometimes we need medication. I'll just leave it at that. And um, I'm not a doctor, but that, that makes the most sense to me. If you're earnestly seeking the Lord, drawing near to him, but still struggle with anxiety, one final reminder, God gives greater grace. That's what James says in the text. He gives greater grace. All you need, sometimes, again, sometimes we get discouraged and we're like, well, I'm struggling with anxiety or I'm struggling with discouragement. Maybe I've been falling away. I've been slacking in my spiritual discipline. So I don't, I don't know if I can come back. I don't know if I can... If I can get back. Well, God hasn't changed, first of all, right? And secondly, all you need to be worthy of, to be a recipient for the grace of God is to be needy. Right? You just need to need God's grace. 
if you don't need God's grace, then he's not going to give it to you. God opposes the proud. If you're too proud and you don't need God's grace, then get packing. But if you're needy, if you're struggling, if you're hurting, that's all you need. And God offers his grace freely when we come to him that way. Again, do you trust our Lord and Father in that way for both the joys and sorrows of tomorrow? Now, James is not saying that you should literally say all the time, if the Lord wills. You can do that if you want. Maybe that's helpful, a helpful reminder, but that's not the point. The question is, in your heart before the Lord, do you believe him to be sovereign over your tomorrows? And are you trusting him to be sovereign over your tomorrows, whatever those tomorrows may bring? You would boast in anything. You should not boast in your own ability or in time that you think you have, but rather in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord back to the text verses 16 and 17 James says that boasting in your will is not only foolish and faithless but it's also wickedness he says as it is you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin James says that they're boasting in their arrogance boasting in their prideful thoughts of themselves and that boasting is just plain and simple evil there's nothing redeemable about boasting yourself there's nothing redeemable in boasting about tomorrow a tomorrow you don't know if it's designed for you or not there's nothing redeemable in boasting about what you may or may not do in your own strength in a tomorrow that's not designed for you may or may not be designed for you the world may embrace that kind of mindset. The world may champion the one who stands up, shakes their fists at the world, picks themselves up by their own bootstraps, conquers all obstacles in their own strength, and tells everyone that they did it. The world celebrates that kind of person, but God doesn't. To him, that kind of boasting is evil. It's evil for precisely the reasons that we already mentioned in the passage. It's living as if God doesn't exist, as if God doesn't matter, as if his sovereignty means nothing to you. It's taking a position of pride above the will of God. It's pursuing friendship with the world, adopting the thoughts, attitudes, and actions of the world, indulging in the passions of the flesh by pursuing the ways of the world. It's evil, and it is not a faith. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This final verse is a fitting summary to underscore all of what James has been saying up until this point. True faith works. True faith responds to the word and will of God, not simply by the things that we don't do, but also by the things that we choose to do. And even when we do not want to. A large part of what James is addressing in this chapter is, again, the passions of the flesh that crave satisfaction. They crave satisfaction to the degree that it has caused quarrels and fights among the believers. The Christians in James's day may not have been particularly fighting against the perversion of the gospel, as Paul's letter to the Galatians. Maybe they weren't fighting about self-control and using their spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians or sexual immorality in 2 Corinthians. But they were fighting among themselves because of selfishness, covetousness, and pride. Pride between one another and pride before the Lord. 
And James says to them, if you know the right thing to do but fail to do it, it is still sin. And so for us, you may not be confused about gender and sexuality as a Christian in a world that seems to have lost all sense of reason when it comes to these issues. You may not be confused about what things are most important when it comes to church ministry, the word of God, the gospel, disciple making, love for the brethren. But even if you nail all of those things and you're not feeding the passions of the flesh, making yourself a friend of the world in those areas, but you still have pride in your heart regarding your livelihood and regarding your life, it's still sin. If you haven't humbled yourself before the sovereignty of God concerning your tomorrow and you are an arrogance boasting about things that you will do, boasting about your life, or even overly anxious about things that may or may not happen tomorrow because you're not considering the sovereignty of God, it is still sin. If you're speaking evil against your brothers and sisters in Christ, being critical and uncaring in your speech towards them, no matter who it is, no matter the context, it is still sin. If you know the right thing to do but fail to do it, you are in sin, period. And you must repent of that sin before the Lord. One author said this, we have the tendency when we think of sin to think only of the things that we've done that we should not have done. He says, I know my own confessions before the Lord tend to focus on these kinds of sins, but I should also consider the ways in which I failed to do what the Lord has commanded me to do. Perhaps I did not reach out to help a neighbor in need, or perhaps I failed to bear witness to a coworker when I had the opportunity. These are also sins for which I must seek God's forgiveness. If you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it, it's still sin. And true faith works. <clears throat> and true faith works, and a part of that work involves taming the passions of the flesh. I wonder, have you fed the passions of the flesh for so long that your life is full of evil speaking and evil boasting? Have you in pride set yourself above the word of God, above your brothers and sisters in Christ, even above the sovereign God, or are you humbly submitting to his will and trusting him with your life? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The question is, do you? Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, which is truth, your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminder in your word that we ought to be humble before you, that we ought to be humble before your word, before your truth, humble with one another, that our words ought to be humble and ought to express love and not discouragement and not evil speech that our hearts ought to be humble before you as we think about our tomorrows, both for the good things that we long for as we know that you are the giver of every good thing and also for the things that cause us anxiety as we trust you to give us, to work all things together for our good. Father, help us to be humble before you because we know that you give grace to those who are humble. We thank you for hearing our prayers this morning. And we pray it all to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.